Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, um, if you're using a pew Bible, they'll be on page 735. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, uh, the big numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are going to be the verse numbers. So we're going to be looking at the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to be reading a large chunk of text to begin our sermon this morning. So we're going to start from chapter 1, verse 4, and we'll be reading all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. Again, that is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. I looked, and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth, and brilliant light flashing all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The likeness of four creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like a human, Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands or their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like the face of a human, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. This is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward, and each had two wings touching that of another, and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved." The likeness of the living creatures were like the appearance of blazing coals of fire or like torches. The fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. When I looked at the living creatures, there was one wheel on the ground beside each of the four-faced creatures. The appearance of the wheels and their craftsmanship was like the gleam of barrel. And the four had the same likeness. Their appearance and craftsmanship was like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. The rims were tall and awe-inspiring. Each of the four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. Whenever the spirit wanted to go, the creatures went in the direction the spirit was moving. The wheels rose alongside them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, the wheels moved. And when the creatures stopped, the wheels stopped. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose alongside them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. 
over the heads of the living creatures, the likeness of an expanse was spread out. It gleamed like awe-inspiring crystal. And under the expanse, their wings extended toward one another. They each also had two wings covering their bodies. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the Almighty, and a sound of tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stopped, they lowered their wings. A voice came from above the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. Something like a throne with the expanse of lapis lazuli was over the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like a fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like a fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I listened to the one who was speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, the rebellious pagans who have rebelled against me. The Israelites and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this day. The descendants are obstinate and hard-hearted. I'm sending you to them, and you must say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. But you, son of man, do not be afraid of them and do not be afraid of their words. Even though you live, even though briars and thorns are beside you and you live among scorpions, don't be afraid of their words or discouraged by the look on their faces, for they are a rebellious house. Speak my words to them, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are rebellious. And you, son of man, listen to what I tell you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. So I looked, and there was a hand reaching out to me, and there was a written scroll in it. And when he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and the back, words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me. Feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll I'm giving you. So I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you're not being sent to a people of unintelligible, unintelligible speech or a difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to the many people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language whose words you cannot understand. No doubt. If I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you. 
for they do not want to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hard-hearted, hard-headed and hard-hearted. Look, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I have made your forehead like diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. Next, he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully to all my words that I speak to you, and take them to heart. Go to your people, the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them, this is what the Lord God says, whether they listen or refuse to listen. The Spirit then lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me. Bless the glory of the Lord in His place. With the sound of the living creatures' wings brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit. And the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. I came to the exiles of Tel Aviv who were living by the Shabar Canal. And I sat there among them stunned for seven days. God, as we hear from your word, We admit that we could do nothing apart from your power. Without your spirit revealing truth to us, we are powerless. We can't, in our own strength or our own power, attempt to understand these these great truths. If I preach this word according to my own fleshly strength, I preach in vain. So God, we we ask that you would help us now as we hear from your word. Would you empower us with your spirit? Would you turn our hearts towards you? And as we behold your glory, will we marvel at the greatness of who you are? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Six Sundays were far too many for me to be gone from from my home. And during the time that I was gone, I got to visit a lot of different churches and and sing with different saints and hear the word of God from different saints. And and as I'm sure most of us who have been Christians, who have lived a long Christian life, we've also been to different churches. And, and as you know, different churches have different styles. And, and different styles will bring about different approaches. And different approaches will bring different colors to the spiritual life. And as I was in Korea for the past month, I got to visit many different kinds of churches. And, and one of them um, I got to visit. And, and I sit down and they begin singing prayer and, and songs of praise. And I got to sing All Hail, The Power of Jesus' Name in Korean, which was really cool, right? And uh, we got to read a prayer of confession that was deep and personal and thought through and had personal time of reflection, which was great, right? And then we began singing songs about Christ and what he has done for us. And then there's a scripture reading, and then there was a response to a scripture reading, thanking God for his word, and by then, my heart is on fire. 
I'm on cloud nine. I'm ready for the word of God to be preached. I'm excited. I'm elated. And then the pastor goes up to the pulpit. And he reads from the word. And he's reading from Genesis 25. He's reading Jacob and Esau. And he looks at his congregation and he says this. I want to speak to you this morning about the happy Christian life. You see, Esau was a unthankful man. He looked at what he had and was disappointed. And didn't thank God for the blessing that he received. But Jacob, he was thankful. And he received the blessing. And then he proceeded to quote many different Christian songs. And give advice on, on why you need to be thankful in, the, in order to receive the blessing of God. And I'm sitting there. And I was completely dumbfounded. He didn't touch the text. He read it once, but he referred to it lightly, but he never talked about it again. I'm sure for many of us visiting many different types of churches, you see different approaches to the text. You might see people having similar patterns of singing. And yet when the preaching comes, you get to see how they approach the Bible. Some people might use the Bible as a springboard. Like the preacher that I heard, that you start with the text and you use it to segue to other things that you'd like to talk about. Other people might use the Bible as tips and tricks, like a fortune cookie dispenser. You you read a verse and out pops a, a proverb for your life. You crack open the cookie and you think, wow, that was that was good. And you move on with your life. Other people use the book like a manual for your life. Good Christian living. But... When you look at the word of God, when you look at the Bible, especially the way that Ezekiel does in this text, the purpose of the word of God is far deeper and far beautiful than mere moral pleasantries. So this is going to be the main idea of today's sermon, to, to bless the glory of the Lord by feasting on the word and proclaiming it. Okay, so, so, so the main idea, the main command from this text is to bless the glory of the Lord. And the way to do that, the way that you bless the glory of the Lord is by feasting on the word and proclaiming it. By feasting on the word and proclaiming it. So we're going to break it down to three sections. Firstly, feast on the word. Feast on the word. Secondly, to proclaim the word. And lastly, we're going to bring it all together and see how our ultimate aim, the goal, culminates in blessing the glory of the Lord. Okay, so the first point here is going to be feast on the word. So the reason why we had to read that long text in the beginning, why we took our time walking through all three chapters, is because what Ezekiel experiences is something completely supernatural. It's not every day that you see four living creatures with wings riding on wheels with four different faces. And a throne with, with the likeness of the glory of God sitting there and speaking to you. And this is the command that God gives Ezekiel in light 
of his blazing glory being displayed before him. Okay, so look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, this is point one, feast on the word. He says this. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. Okay, so, so God unravels this scroll in chapter 2, and then he proceeds to command Ezekiel to eat this scroll. To eat this scroll. So, so he's supposed to eat the scroll first, and then he's supposed to go and speak to the house of Israel. So he eats the scroll. He eats the word of God, and then he goes and he proclaims it. So right away, there's a question for us, which is, have we eaten the scroll? In order to speak in order to proclaim the word of God, you first need to know the word of God. You need to ingest the word of God. You need to eat the word of God. So as we begin thinking about how we are to bless the glory of the Lord through the feasting and the proclaiming of God's word, we must ask ourselves, do you know the word? Do you know it? And, and not just do you know it, but do you actually know it? I remember in my freshman year going into Bible college, I walk into my Old Testament class, my professor looks up at me, you know, and, and I can only imagine what it feels like to be an, an older, wiser man looking at a sea of optimistic 18-year-old boys, right? And he leans against his podium like this and he looks at us and he goes, you know, I'm sure all of you love Jesus, He's like, I have no doubt that all of you were youth group all-stars in high school who, who memorized five verses and thought that you were called to ministry. He goes, I love you enough to be straight with you. You don't know anything. So, and most of you are going to read the Old Testament for the first time, and it's going to scare you. So don't worry, just ask good questions. I'm sitting there, I'm looking around at my peers, I'm like, did y'all hear that? That was for you. That's important. Make sure y'all know the word. And I come back next week, wide-eyed, raising my hand, saying, I, what are Nephilim, right? Like, like, what in the world are you talking about? So I ask you, do you know the word of God? Do you know this book? Because here's a danger for us as Christians. You live your life every week. You go to church every Sunday and decades go by and we learn the language. We become fluent in Christianese. Right, how was your week? It was good. God has blessed me. Or I'm going through a trial right now. Or pray for my unspoken. Or whatever it may be. And our pithy statements can sometimes mask whether or not we actually know the word. And we would be foolish to, to let this didactic, living, active word not be ingested into our hearts. Amen. The, the wisest words that we could come up with with our own power can't compare to the wisdom of God himself speaking Amen. to us. Verse 2. So I opened my mouth and he fed me 
the scroll. Okay, so, so get this picture. Ezekiel sees the glory of God. God commands him to eat the scroll, and then he proceeds to feed him. He takes the scroll and he shoves it into Ezekiel's mouth. Now, there's an important thing to notice here, which is that God is the one who feeds Ezekiel. Okay, God is the one who feeds Ezekiel. So, you cannot just go to the Word in your own power. We might look at words on a piece of paper and, and look at the Bible like a textbook. It's a, it's a good book for us to gain information from. That we need to look at the Word, intellectually evaluate the Word, and, and draw truths from the Word. But we have a far more active Word than just mere facts. This book is not a mere textbook for our souls. It is God himself speaking to us. And if this word is to speak to our souls, then we need the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds. God's word is not a self-serve buffet. You don't just go and pick out your chicken or your noodles or whatever you want to eat. God himself spoon-feeds us the word through his Spirit. Verse 3, son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll I'm giving you. So I ate it. Okay, so again, so at first, it's kind of strange. You look at verse 2 and God is feeding Ezekiel the word. And then in verse 3, God is telling Ezekiel to eat the word. And then he says that he eats it. So, in verse 2, God is feeding him the word. In verse 3, he's eating the scroll himself. So, what does this idea mean for us? Well, there's a command from God to, to eat the word, to ingest the word. In other words, you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to wait for the Spirit to feed me. You know, I can't do anything apart from the power of the Spirit, so... Unless the Spirit illuminates my mind, you know, God's not going to speak to me. I'm not going to read my Bible today because God hasn't spoken to me or the Spirit hasn't illuminated my heart. It's not a passive thing. See, you can't do it apart from the power of the Spirit, but at the same time, God does command you to eat the Word. You have to actually actively obey the command. So notice what's happening here. God is acting upon his own supernatural power through the spirit, illuminating the word of God to our hearts. At the same time, we in obedience are going before God and reading the word. Can you see the compatibility happening here? It's not one or the other. It's both happening at the same time. Look at the last part of verse 3 with me. So, I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. So, you have a scroll with paper and ink on it, and he's feeding Ezekiel, and he's eating it, and the scroll tastes like honey. Now, I pray that none of you start to try to eat the pew Bibles in front of you. But the word of God isn't a cough syrup that your parents force you to swallow. 
It's not a reluctant medicine for our souls. The word is a delectable feast that God invites you to eat. It is sweet to us. The word of God is a gift. But why is it sweet? If you remember when we were reading the word earlier in chapter 2 verse 10, he unrolls a scroll and says it was written on the front and the back words of lamentation or, or crying or mourning and woe were written on it. So the scroll has words of lamentation to the nation of Israel. And if you read the rest of the book, you see that there is a lot of sad stuff on that scroll. The glory of the Lord leaves Israel. Ezekiel is saying that you have abandoned the Lord God and God is going to judge you and destroy you because of your idolatry. And Ezekiel is eating the word and it tastes like honey. Seems like it ought to be bitter, not sweet tasting. Doesn't make sense. Let me give you three reasons why the scroll that Ezekiel eats is sweet. Firstly, because God is sweet. Because God is sweet. It tastes good. The words that are spoken or written taste good because the one who speaks it is good. See, the, the sweetness of the word points to the sweetness of the speaker. God is a good God, and when he speaks, it is always good. Amen. Reason number two, because revealing sin, to, to mourn over sin, to, to call out sin, is an act of love. In order for someone to be okay with sin, they would either have to think, one, that sin isn't all that bad, or secondly, that the one being offended is irrelevant, or he, he doesn't care, or even if he did care, he wouldn't be able to do anything about it anyway. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, and, and you're hearing me talk about God's judgment, here's what God has to say to you, or what I want to say to you from, from the pulpit. The most loving thing that we can do as Christians for you is to tell you that you're a sinner. That's the most loving thing that we can do for you. We're not about coexisting. We want to tell you the truth. And the reason why we tell you the truth isn't because we have this holiness sledgehammer that we want to slam your head with, but because we actually think that telling you this truth, that you are a sinner, telling you this bad news that you are a sinner, is actually the most loving thing that we can do for you. Why? Because of the third reason why the scroll is sweet. Because there is a redemption that is offered. Because there is a redemption that is offered. Turn with me to Ezekiel 43. Keep your, keep your finger on chapter 3, but turn with me very quickly. Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 7. Ezekiel 43, verse 7. So what happens is Ezekiel sees this glorious picture of a new temple in which God dwells. And this is what he says in verse 7. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my holy name by their religious prostitution and by the corpses of the kings at their high places. 
Whenever they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost next to my doorpost with only a wall between me and them, they were defiling my holy name and by the the detestable acts they committed. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me and I will dwell among them forever. What's the good news there? That he will remove the sinful prostitution of his priests and God himself will dwell with his people. That there will be a redemption. That God doesn't just leave us in our sin. He doesn't just leave us and and judge us and condemn us in our sin, even though he will be perfectly just to do so. But he redeems us. He provides a way for us. And, And we know that hope to be in the person of Christ. So, so here's the good news for us Christians. It's not that our sin isn't a big deal. It's not that our sin isn't irrelevant. The solution isn't to downplay our own rebellion and sin, but to recognize the bitterness, feel the front load of the weight of our sin, and then see how much greater the grace of God is in Christ Jesus. As Thomas Watson writes, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And how great is that grace for us? That Christ would die for the sake of sinners? That he would give us grace that is greater than our sin? That we can share in the inheritance of glory that only the Son deserves for us? What a gift! What a deal! That our sins are many, but His mercy is more. What a sweet truth for us. If you've sinned this past week, God's mercy is greater than your sin. If you're a non-Christian hearing this word this morning, I invite you to flee from your sin, turn from your sin, and run to Christ. He offers sweet forgiveness and redemption for you that only He can offer. And this good, sweet word is not just good in mere moderation. No, it's not like the pork belly that I had in the motherland where you eat, but you know that there's a bad day coming for you tomorrow. No, God commands Ezekiel to fill his belly. Have your full. So eat, feast on the word. Fill your mouth with it. Be bloated in God's word. Waddle around with the word of God filling your body. How do you do that? Well, here's a couple tips for us in in feasting on God's word. Firstly, pray for God's help as you read. Pray for God's help as you read. If God's the one who feeds us the scroll, if it's by the Spirit of God, then we need to acknowledge the supernatural act that is happening when we approach the Word of God. Secondly, actually set aside time to spend time in the Word. If God commands us to to actually eat the scroll, then we need to set aside time to eat. Nobody says, I'll eat dinner if I have time. You make time. 
You set aside time. And lastly, set up time to read with other brothers and sisters. It's, it's nice to have avocado toast by yourself, like I did this morning. It's way better to have breakfast with other people. There's a joy that happens when you eat with other people, when you commune with other people, when you spend time with other people. And what a joy it is, brothers and sisters, to be able to read the word of God together with one another. That you can rejoice, that you could eat together, that you could taste the savoriness of God's word together. It is a good thing for us. So that's point one, to feast on the word of God. Secondly, proclaim the word. Proclaim the word. Look at verse four. Then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Okay, so... So God tells Ezekiel to go and speak with his words. So, so notice this. Ezekiel sees the blazing glory of God. And, and when that happens, your life changes. There are going to be some fundamental shifts that go on in Ezekiel's life after seeing the glory of God in person. But God doesn't say to go and use your life to point to God. To to, to use words if necessary. Now, obviously, his life has changed, but no one looked at the way that he was living solely and said, wow, I'm a sinner in need of God's mercy. Right? He used his words. He needs to proclaim the word of God. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God. So God commands him to speak, verse 5. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to the many peoples of unintelligible speech or a difficult language whose words you cannot understand. So these are great excuses for not sharing the word of God, aren't they? That if you try to proclaim the gospel in English and you're in Japan, you're going to get a lot of blank stares. People aren't going to know what you're talking about. But look at what he says in the passage following. No doubt, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they do not want to listen to me. Get that. So God is saying... That it is easier to speak to a people with different language. Or even people that are so intellectually inept that they are incapable of understanding what you're saying. And he's saying that it will be easier for them to hear the word of God and repent than the people of Israel. Wow. Why is that? Last part of verse 7. For the whole house of Israel is hard-headed and hard Hearted. Their heads are resistant to comprehending. And their hearts are hardened from being able to feel. And they had the word of God. Don't let the Bible in your hand fool you. Into thinking that you're some mag- suddenly magically receptive to the word of God. You can hold the word in your hand. You could receive God's very own words and still be hardened to the truth that you hear week after week after week. 
Verse 8. Look, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I have made your forehead like a diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. So the response, so, so guys saying that they're hard-hearted, they're stubborn people. But the solution that God gives them, the command that he gives Ezekiel is not to slow down. It's not to soften the message, add some spice to make it more palatable. But to be just as persistent as their hearts may be. To be more stubborn than their own stubbornness. That if someone is hardened to the word of God, you are hardened to their hardening. I understand you don't want to hear me say the gospel, but I will tell it to you again. And sometimes we we go to conferences or we hear a sermon and you go out and you think, wow, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to do this. Your heart's on fire. And you go out and you picture yourself going out, standing in front of crowds of people, preaching the word of God. Maybe this is just my own dream here. And fire falls down on the people. People begin to weep. They, they feel the strength of God in their lives and the spirit of God comes. And by the grace of God, that could happen. And other times you go and, and you serve the word and, and you labor, you prepare, you pray, and you go and you proclaim the word of God and nothing happens. Your friend looks at you and says, thanks man. So what do you want for lunch? So, and you get really confused and you ask yourself, did, did I mess up? Did God mess up? Well, it's certainly possible that we can mess up. But there are plenty of examples in Scripture of God telling people to proclaim God's word despite knowing that they won't listen. That they won't listen. Isaiah sees the glory of God and then is told to go speak to the people, right? We, we say that all the time, here I am I, send me. In the very next verse, God tells them that he is going to go speak to people who can't hear their message. So Isaiah, thank you. I put a coal in your mouth. You said send me. I'm going to go send you to someone who won't listen to you. And you're going to spend your entire life preaching the gospel to people that will never listen to a word that you say. Who wants that ministry? Moses is commanded to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let his people go, despite God being the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Jesus teaches that if anyone wants to live, they must eat the bread of life, which is himself, and everyone leaves. There are plenty of examples in scripture where we are commanded to proclaim the word of God to stubborn people. Verse 10. Next, he said to me, son of man, listen carefully to all the word, all my words that I speak to you and take them to heart. So again, here's the command to, to listen carefully and to apply it to our hearts and then proclaim it. Verse 11, go to your people, the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them this is what the Lord God says, whether they, refuse, whether they listen or refuse to listen. Whether they listen or refuse to listen. Okay? So the proclamation of the word isn't about whether or not they listen or refuse. God already knows those who are going to respond and those who are not going to respond. 
He has already predestined those who are going to respond to the word of God. But he doesn't tell Ezekiel to go because they will listen. He actually tells them to go because they won't listen. To go proclaim the word of God, especially because they won't listen. And this is especially difficult for us because we as human beings tend to chase tangibles. We want something that we can measure. You compare yourselves to others and you might think they must be doing something right. Look at the crowds they draw or look at how moved the people are or look at the number of baptisms that they have. Clearly, the spirit is working there and not here, but brothers and sisters, our proclamation is not about meeting an evangelism quota. It's about obedience. When our confidence in the word is fixed on results and not the one that we proclaim, we commit idolatry because we believe the strength of the word to be in the results that it creates and not our confidence in the, in the one who has spoken. It's a sad thing to reduce God's power to numbers. Is it not possible that God has metrics that we cannot possibly comprehend? Trust God to do as he pleases according to his glorious grace. This also means that our cynicism about a generation or cultural climate shouldn't affect our confidence in the word of God being preached. You look at the state of the world today, right? You might hear people talking with each other and saying this world is going to hell in a handbasket. Your heart might be hardened and become cynical. You look at what happens in Charlottesville last weekend. You look at the despicable evil of racism being lived out. You look at constant people rejecting the word of God and loving their sin more than Christ. And despite hearing the word of God, actively rejecting it for their sinful pleasures. And you can begin to think that things are hopeless. That even if I bothered to speak, it's not like these people are going to listen. But the proclamation of God's word has been God's tool to reach every single generation for millennia. And any attempt to compromise, twist, or alter, or repackage the word will make, to make it more palpable to people will be faux false copies that will wither with time. But brothers and sisters, the word of God will always endure. He has proven to be faithful for centuries, for thousands of years, and he will continue to be faithful in this generation. Our confidence goes far beyond our cultural climate. So what does this mean for us? We must proclaim the word of God. Tell the gospel. Tell people the gospel. Tell them the good news. Tell them. If you're a non-Christian here today, this is the good news. That God created the world and he created it to be good. That we sin as a result of our sin. We deserve the condemnation and just Judgment of God, but God in his rich mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, to live the life that we never could. To die on the cross, to bear the wrath of God in our place. And he rose victorious from the dead. And he will return. 
and we will have everlasting life in him. That is the good news. And we have to share it to people. They need to hear it. Because if you do not tell them, who will? Who will? I was sitting at the airport two days ago. I sit down and... And a girl asked me if I could watch her stuff. And she comes back, and I could tell she's a college student. So I just ask her what she studies. And she's a foreign policy student. Her name was Isabella. And she's she just, I was like, tell me more about that. So she just kind of rattles off, right? Like most people involved in governmental affairs, right? And, and afterwards, after about 30 minutes of me listening and, and asking more questions, she asks, well, what do you study? And I tell her, I'm a Bible student. And she knew exactly where it was going. (laughs) It's pretty easy, pretty simple. So let me give you a very simple, practical, practical tool. What did you do last weekend? Well, I got drunk and partied it up and lived up. What did you do last weekend? Well, and that's a perfect segue, isn't it? Why is it that when we share how our weekends go, we ignore one half of it? That we're scared to share about it. So I, I encourage you that when you go to your workplace tomorrow, just ask people how their weekend went. And actually have the boldness to proclaim the word of God to them. Because again, it's not about whether or not they receive it well. It's about the word of God being preached. About them hearing it. About them hearing the good news. And and also, here's, a, here's another thing for us. To pray that God would reveal gospel opportunities. We need to ask God to reveal opportunities for us. And, and for us to take the courage to seize it. If our knees shake, if our tongue stutters like Moses, we need God to embolden our hearts to go and speak. And share gospel opportunities and attempts and failures with the church. Share them with each other. Encourage each other with the ministry that you're doing. We do that in the Sunday evenings where we ask about people that are trying to gospelize their neighbors or their, their co-workers that week. And hear their attempts and be encouraged. None of us are professional evangelizers. It's not about standing behind a wooden pulpit and preaching the gospel. It's about sharing the good news. Lastly, this all culminates in the aim to bless the glory of the Lord. Bless the glory of the Lord. Verse 12. And the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me. Bless the glory of the Lord in His place. So what is the goal? The goal, the aim, the purpose of this ingesting the word, this proclaiming the word of God, is to bless the glory of God. So why do we preach? Why do we share the gospel? Because the glory of God is not being blessed. Why do we send missionaries to the world to share the gospel? Because the glory of God is not being blessed. Because people don't know Him. Because people don't worship this God. This glorious God. This glorious, magnificent, beautiful God is not being worshipped. And that's why we must go. That's why we must go. 
That's why we spent so much time reading this passage in the beginning of this sermon. Because we need to see this glorious picture of God. This freaky picture of four living creatures and heavenly expanse and God sitting on his throne. Now, who got to see this glorious picture? Ezekiel. Ezekiel gets to see this this grandiose picture of God's glory. But but let's think about this for a moment. So so Ezekiel sees this vision. He gets a command. He eats a scroll. And then he's thrown off to a place. And who doesn't get to see this magnificent picture of God? The Israelites. They don't get a rumbling sound. They don't get four living creatures and a heavenly expanse and and Christ sitting on a throne, do they? What do they get? Or a better question will be, if we're supposed to bless the glory of the Lord and people don't see that, right? Let's be honest. How many of us have had a vision like that? I don't think so. So, how do we see it? If we're supposed to bless the glory of the Lord, right? If we're supposed to bless this image, if Ezekiel's supposed to point people to that image, but he can't just show them the image, right? He can't just tap people's foreheads and then they have this magnificent revelation of God, then how is he supposed to bless the glory of the Lord? By proclaiming the glory of God. The word of God is the looking glass to the blazing glory of God. It's the means. It's how we see God. It's this book. This is how we do it. We must beware of ever viewing the word as an obstacle to the faith. Of being reluctant to use it. Or to be reluctant when we think of it. Or or when we hear ancient old language to think this can't possibly be useful today. But it's actually... The word of God is the very means by which God speaks and reveals himself to us. It's the centerpiece of our worship gathering because it reveals the focus of our worship, God himself. If you want to see God, you need the word of God. That's how you see it. Verse 13, the sound of the living creatures Wings brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. Then the spirit lifted me up and took me away. I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit. And the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. So Ezekiel is taken away and he is bitter. He's angry. <laughs> and why is Ezekiel bitter? Two reasons. Firstly, because he's it, eaten a scroll Full of bitterness. There's lamentation. There's mourning. There's woe on the scroll. And Ezekiel, after eating the word, is actually being shaped and molded by the word. Isn't that true for us? You read the word of God. You're shaped and changed by the word of God. Secondly, because he understands the blazing glory of God. He's seen a picture of God that most of us will never be able to see in our lifetime. Until we're in glory. Or if Christ comes again. And when he sees the glory of God. And he receives the command to bless it. He looks at the putrid filth. Of the idols. The people of God are exchanging it for. And he is angry. Because he understands. The worth. Of the one that they're rejecting. 
It is a right thing to be frustrated when someone does not recognize the true worth of something. Right? LeBron versus Kobe. People get really riled up. I don't know why. I don't care about basketball, right? But they're claiming that the true worth of whatever individual they're talking about is not being recognized. Right? Or think about whatever else that you're passionate about. A film or a music artist or whatever it may be. People get heated. Politics. People get heated. And why do they get heated? Because in our delighting in various things, we become zealous for those things. And how much greater is the incomparable glory and worth of our God? And Ezekiel sees that worth and glory, and he sees sin, and he is completely and utterly disgusted. So if you're a non-Christian, let me ask you this question. Think about the thing that you most delight in. What's that thing that you can't let go of? What's that thing that you're chasing? And let me ask you something. Has it satisfied you? Has it actually satisfied you? If you're a Christian here this morning, we are so quick to divert our gaze from that which brings us pleasure, aren't we? We are so quick to divert our gaze from God. And we need this word to consistently throw us back before the glory of God so that we can see clearly. If you want to remind yourself of the worth of God, if you're Weak was hard and weary. There is no greater truth than that that we could receive from his word. It is a sweet truth to us. And for our church, have zeal for the glory of God, brothers and sisters. If you do, your priorities become clear. We lose the word of God. We lose our compass as a church. We lose our purpose as a church. And we can often mask temporal desires, temporary desires, even worldly desires, in statements that sound godly. We might say things like, what's best for this church? Or what we think would be wise. And while those things may be sincere and good desires, we must test them all in the light of blessing the glory of the Lord. That has the purpose of our church. Because if it does not bless the glory of the Lord, even though it might be a good thing, even though it might be something that we should divert some of our attention to, it is secondary. And it is a far secondary focus to our primary focus, which is blessing the glory of God. We must be wary of diverting from this goal, brothers and sisters. Because Satan does not want us. His strategy is not to switch us from the glory of God to worshiping evil. I don't expect us to walk in next week with black cloaks and pentagrams on our necks. That is not Satan's strategy. Satan's strategy is to get us to focus on anything other than the glory of God. It could be a good thing, but if we focus on anything other than God's glory, then we neglect God's true worth. And we commit idolatry, trading the Almighty for lesser things. So ask questions in light of the mystery. How will this bring glory to God? And don't just talk about things. Talk about things in light of the glory of God. Constantly point back to it. After a Sunday morning gathering, don't just say that it was good. 
Don't just say that your Sunday school was good. Don't just say that Bible study was good. Talk about how God used the word to encourage you. Talk about how you were able to bless the glory of God or help you treasure Christ or to see God's glory. And let's close with verse 15. I came to exiles at Tel Aviv who were living by the Shabar Canal. I sat there among them, stunned for seven days. And Ezekiel was stunned. <laughs> to, be, to be passed out, motionless for seven days, marveling at the glory of this great God. And brothers and sisters, how much more should we marvel at this great God? Do you realize that what Ezekiel eagerly awaited in anticipation, we have heard and now testify in the person and work of Christ that, that even if we had similar visions of a great glory of God being displayed before us, we have a clearer picture because we know of Christ himself. The person that Ezekiel was waiting for, we know. We know how our sins have been paid for in Christ. We know why we have the hope that we have in Christ. And we know the glory of the Lord that blazed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Because we can sing, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Brothers and sisters, we have a clearer picture of glory. We have a greater picture of glory now. And what a marvelous glory we have. What a beautiful, awesome God we serve. And we have the privilege of feasting on this joy and sharing it with other people. So let us bless the glory of the Lord in this church, in our workplaces, in Bellflower, and to the ends of the earth. God, would you ever increase our view of you and help us to bless your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.